but I look at women's health in a bigger picture, mm-hmm. which is different than most OBGYNs because most OBGYNs hone in on, you know, breast and pelvis. And I look at it from, okay, the number one disease that OBGYNs see is obesity. And from there, women are most likely to die from heart disease, just as are men. And number two is cancer. Welcome to Plant-Based DFW with Dr. Riz and Maya. Dr. Nancy Louise Erickson graduated with a BS in biology from the University of Miami in Miami, Florida in 1981, and an MD degree from the Wright State University School of Medicine in 1985. Dr. Erickson completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the Wright State University Affiliated Hospital in 1989, and then a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at the University of Houston Health Sciences in 1991. She is currently an associate professor in maternal fetal medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. In the last few years, she has developed an interest in lifestyle medicine and just passed her board exam to be certified in lifestyle medicine. Let's listen to our interview with Dr. Erickson. Dr. Erickson, it's a pleasure to have you on the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to start off by mentioning that you recently gave a lecture at the Peace and Wellness Retreat in Houston, Texas last month. Yes. And my husband, Dr. Riz, sat in on your lecture and said you were an excellent speaker. As a result, he asked me to make sure that I interview you. So let's talk about what you specialize in as an OB-GYN. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I do is I specialize in pregnancy, in fact, high-risk pregnancies. So I see patients. I do diagnostic ultrasound, amniocentesis, prenatal diagnosis, and consultations, both outpatient, inpatient, um, in the Texas Medical Center. For women who have complications, that could range anywhere from, you know, the garden variety, hypertension, diabetes, mm-hmm. um, preterm labor, premature rupture of membranes to people with congenital heart disease, strokes, heart attacks, all kinds of complications that occur just during pregnancy. And out of those, what are the most common problems that you see? So I get a lot of consultations um, for uh, obesity. I get a lot for high blood pressure and diabetes. Those are the most common ones. In fact, obesity is the most common problem or disease that OB-GYNs see currently. I incorporate lifestyle uh, counseling into those consultations because studies have shown that if you change your lifestyle, you can reverse those diseases such as obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, risk for coronary artery disease, and such. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those lifestyle modifications that you recommend to your patients who may have, like you said, obesity or high blood pressure, or diabetes? Well, I, I try and keep it simple. And I just tell them, I said, pregnancy is going to make you tired. And the thing that's going to help you with that is fiber and plants. So if you stress eating plants, you're going to find that you're going to have more energy because you're going to get not only the calories, you're going to get all the phytonutrients and antioxidants, which um, help boost your metabolism and increase your energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can also decrease the risk for complications uh, during the pregnancy, and it can decrease the uh, excessive weight gain. There are, there are uh, recommendations about how much weight women should gain based on what their BMI is. And most women, even if they have a normal BMI, typically gain too much weight. And so when possible, if they're open, I discuss um, moving towards a whole food plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. So you and I know what whole plant-based foods are, but for those that are, may not be aware, what sorts of foods are we talking about? 
well, vegetables, fruit, um, whole grains, uh, beans, legumes, nuts, and seeds. That's, that's primarily what compromise a whole food plant-based diet. How likely are your patients to actually adopt such a diet when they are already pregnant and say are dealing with some of these health problems? That will depend. I mean, I bump up against all kinds of um, resistance, sometimes from their own general OBGYN who's referred the patient. A lot of them are not aware of um, a lot of the research on the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. And a lot of these women will say, yeah, I've heard things like this, because I'll ask them, have you heard of the movie Forks Over Knives? And some will say, yeah, I just watched that not too long ago. I have a cousin or some family member who said I should watch it. And I said, well, that's kind of the lifestyle I'm talking about that not only help you now during the pregnancy, will help you in the future as far as trying to avoid a lot of the complications due to obesity and some of these uh, medical problems or comorbidities that you may have. But oftentimes they tell me, you know, if they're the sole cook in the family and there's a lot of resistance from their husband or partner, they may not feel comfortable implementing some of those changes because of the taste of other family members, either children or husband. I get it. It's something that we hear often, even here. It's very difficult to stay on a healthy diet when no one else in the household is on board. So, um, so which patients are more likely to adhere to such a diet? The ones that adhere to it are the ones that typically either don't need to go on medication, such as insulin during the pregnancy, or if they are on insulin already, uh, don't need to go up as much and tend to have better control of their blood sugars, which lowers the risk of many complications due to diabetes during the pregnancy. Going along the lines of nutrition and pregnancy, I actually found it interesting that you said in your recent lecture that the diet a mother consumes during her pregnancy actually has been shown to influence gene expression in her unborn child. Is that correct? That's correct. So I came across some very interesting research. One uh, was just, well, the study involved looking at the miscarriages of women and looking at the main artery that comes out of the heart, which is called the aorta. And they looked, they correlated um, fatty streaks in the aorta with women who ate the most cholesterol, which is exclusively found in animal products such as meat, dairy, eggs, fish, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So... Before that, they thought that fatty streaks only started happening during childhood or late teenage years. And now we're finding that what you eat during your pregnancy actually can cause the, the beginnings of atherosclerosis, which is hardening of the arteries, even mm -hmm. as a fetus. That's incredible. I can't believe that can actually happen. I know. And then also the standard American diet especially processed foods and things like that, um, alter the genes, which this is a field called epigenetics, which studies the environmental impact of uh, what we eat, toxins we're exposed to, et cetera, and the impact on the expression of our genes. In other words, the food we eat can either turn on or turn off genes, and based on that can determine how that future health of the baby. So they've done studies on women uh, who are obese, they're not on a special diet, they're just eating the standard American diet, and they can show that uh, just by being obese and eating the typical American foods, that they increase the risk for their child um, having obesity later in life, having metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and even heart disease. In one study, they showed that women who are high, had high blood pressure um, increased the risk for their adult children at age 40 having high blood pressure. Wow. 
And some of this, you know, some people might say, well, that's because probably they're just feeding their kids the same thing they're eating. So therefore, of course, they're going to have increased risk for this. But they've actually found this on the genetic level that it's called hypermethylation of the DNA. That's the medical term for it. But basically what you eat, if it you uh, have increased methyl groups on the end of these uh, structural DNA, can actually turn off certain genes that are protective for us and increase the risk for problems down the road, whether it's obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, or even cancer. So what you're saying is that what a mother consumes during pregnancy can either turn off protective genes for that child or turn on genes that can help protect that child throughout their life? Absolutely. Um, We've shown in adults that have end-stage heart disease with real bad um, blockages in their coronary arteries that by eating a whole food plant-based diet within three years, approximately three years, they can reverse the blockages completely. So it just goes to show that if you eat that way while your mother's pregnant, she can prevent that process from happening and also by feeding her children the same diet um, as they grow up. What about the onset of gestational diabetes and preeclampsia during pregnancy? Obese women have a much higher risk for both gestational diabetes and preeclampsia, both of which, um, more more so preeclampsia, if it occurs early in the pregnancy, may lead to a preterm delivery. Obese women, they have a lot of different complications. One is an increased risk for birth defects, especially congenital heart defects, and they have an increased risk for having a large baby, which might increase their risk for having a cesarean delivery. Mm-hmm. And women with a BMI over 40 have an increased risk for stillbirth. So we do more monitoring late in the third trimester for those women. And mm-hmm. some of them are shocked to hear that, that their baby could die just because they're obese. Yes, I bet they are. I had no idea that a mother's weight could actually put her pregnancy at risk. Fortunately, that risk is, the absolute risk is relatively small, but because there is an increased risk, we do recommend monitoring. And um, I'm seeing patients, you know, just as a frame of reference, a BMI greater than 40 is considered extreme obesity. We're seeing women with BMIs over 50 now, which is called super obesity. And about two and a half to three percent of all pregnant women are in that category. In fact, I saw a patient just this week with a BMI of 73. It was that's the that's the most I've ever the largest BMI I've ever seen in a patient so far. Wow. And I'm assuming that once these women have experienced either gestational diabetes or preeclampsia during the first pregnancy, that it's most, more likely to happen in a future pregnancy. Is that right? Absolutely. And, if, and also, women who get gestational diabetes have about a 50% chance of getting diabetes in between pregnancies or type 2 diabetes on the order of about 50% within the next five years. So one of the things I try and share with them is that one is you need to be tested again for diabetes. And um, if, if you bring your weight down in between pregnancies, you can lower your risk for those happening in the subsequent pregnancy. Well, this sounds promising that by losing weight in between pregnancies, the mother would reduce her risk of developing diabetes or gestational diabetes and um, preeclampsia. So I guess it would be ideal just to maintain a normal weight. The current recommendation from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, as well as the World Health Organization, is to actually obtain a normal BMI. So a BMI less than 30. Okay. Um, prior to conceiving, to avoid those complications. That's the ideal. But even a 5 to 10% reduction in weight can lower your risk for a lot of 
complications. So mm -hmm. I encourage them to try to lose some type of, you know, some weight, at least 10% mm -hmm. if possible, but preferably get a BMI less than 30. Dr. Erickson, how did you begin to incorporate nutrition counseling for your patients? Well, I started, this is actually my own personal journey. About 10 years ago, I started looking into what is the optimal diet. As I was approaching menopause, I wanted to see what could I take to help lower my risk for a lot of problems. I had a mother who had breast cancer and Anne had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. so that was a concern. But I also knew from recent literature that heart uh, hormonal replacement therapy actually increased your risk for breast cancer. And prior to that study coming out, I planned on taking it when I went through menopause to lower some of the symptoms. I came across the movie Forks Over Knives. I watched it. And because of all the study I'd done up to then, it just kind of made perfect sense. The science backed up what I was already suspecting, which is plants are healthy mm -hmm. and actually prevent and reverse um, many diseases. So I had actually just gone through menopause, I was having horrible hot flushes. Within a week, I went whole food plant-based. Within two weeks of me doing so, all my hot flushes went away. Wow. I oh know. And it's interesting because the, the studies show that hot flushes last for an average of 10 years. And mm -hmm. I knew that. And I was like, there's no way I could take this for 10 years. <laughs> and so I found it to be very powerful. And uh, as a result, I've wanted to share that with my patients. So what were those changes that you implemented in your own diet that helped to prevent hot flashes? Well, I, I like green leafy vegetables. That's probably one of my favorites. So not just salads, but lots of kale, um, chard, things like that, and beans. Greens and beans are probably one of my favorite combination meals. That's mainly what I was eating, but I was, I was staying away from added oils, anything with sugar. I was staying away from alcohol, mm -hmm. anything I could do to lower my risk for subsequent problems. And I noticed if I did occasionally have alcohol, that that would start things up again, meaning I wouldn't feel as good. The hot flushes sometimes would try and recur just from glass or two of wine. Can these nutritional changes also help with menstrual cramps? Well, menstrual cramps are primarily caused by something called prostacyclins. They are kind of a pro-inflammatory pathway. Mm -hmm. So the, the plants are actually anti-inflammatory. So that helps. I, I'm not sure um, beyond that what specific ways it works to um, minimize cramps, but I do know that by avoiding foods that have a lot of fat or um, sugar in them, that helps to lower your risk for the menstrual cramps. Why do you think that wine contributed to your hot flashes? So Alcohol is very inflammatory. In essence, it's a complex sugar. Most people don't know this, but alcohol, your typical carbohydrates, such as either sugar or flour or name it, is four, four calories per gram, but alcohol is seven calories per gram. So you're getting almost twice the calories. Uh, it is pro-inflammatory because it's, it's broken down pretty quickly in the bloodstream. And so it kind of sets off a cascade of events. And I know as the older I get, the less I, I, I pretty much don't drink anymore unless <laughs> it's a mm -hmm. special occasion because uh -huh. my body does not like it. Well, I can identify with that. So in October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine released a new campaign titled, Let's Beat Breast Cancer. And it addresses a four-pronged approach. Would you like to touch on that? Sure. 
So the four-pronged approach, um, based on uh, studies that have strong, strong evidence that you can prevent um, breast cancer, includes eating whole food plant-based diet, a regular exercise, which um, they recommend at least uh, three hours a week uh, of regular exercise, moderate exercise, and then maintaining a healthy body weight, which would be a BMI less than 25. Mm -hmm. and either limiting or avoiding alcohol. What's wrong with drinking alcohol? That's one piece, but you know, when you think about it, uh, most people who drink alcohol, even in moderation, but on a regular basis, like drinking a glass or two every day or several glasses of, of an alcoholic beverage every week, and people who drink alcohol are more likely to overeat, number one, and they're more mm. likely to eat unhealthy foods. And so that also is correlated with obesity. It's not just the chemical of it, it's what the chemical by changing, you know, lowering your inhibitions allows you to do, which is both overeat and eat unhealthy. What foods can help us reduce our risk for breast cancer? I think as far as the whole food plant-based diet, you need a variety of plants. Uh, that includes fruit, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, nuts, and seeds. But there are certain plants that are have been shown to really be helpful in terms of either preventing cancer or reducing the risk of death from cancer. Mm -hmm. One group of foods is your, what we call our the cruciferous vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, those are plants that are in the group of like green leafy vegetables, your kale, your cabbage, your broccoli, cauliflower. It also includes things like bok choy, Brussels sprouts, radishes, collards, turnip, watercress, rutabaga, arugula, things like that. So those are all cancer fighting types of plants. Michael Greger, whom you know, um, advocates eating cruciferous vegetables every day is part of uh, the daily um, intake of foods because they're so powerful at fighting cancer. All of those foods sound wonderful. What about genes? What role do they play in breast cancer? Most people have heard about the BRAC gene, the BRAC gene, which mm -hmm. is actually a um, it's actually a cancer-fighting gene. It's supposed to suppress cancer, but a lot of people want to get tested for that, especially if there's a strong family history. But the BRAC gene only really accounts for about 5% of all breast cancer. The large majority, nearly 90% of all breast cancer occurs in women who have no family history of breast cancer. Hmm. It's not specifically related to a mutation in the BRAC gene. Um, mm -hmm. But we know that we can influence the how the BRAC gene is expressed through food. I was mentioning earlier that if a woman's eating food that uh, helps methylate some of the fetus's genes that promotes um, disease later in life, the same thing can happen with the BRAC gene. So by eating healthy, eating more whole food plant-based, you can reverse that and then allow the BRAC gene to actually do what it's supposed to do, which is suppress cancer. We can influence how the BRAC gene is expressed so what you're saying is that there are actual risk factors that we can control? Absolutely. Those are called modifiable risk factors. And we've touched on a few. One is your BMI or, or your, your weight. So a BMI greater than 25, that means if you're overweight or obese, that increases your risk. And one of the reasons obesity or being overweight increases is fat cells make estrogen. And estrogen, mm -hmm. higher estrogen levels are correlated with increased risk for breast cancer. Also, we mentioned alcohol and lack of exercise and poor diet. But also individuals who work the night shift, um, those people are generally sleep deprived and also people who work the night shift, it's also known that they overeat the next day and 
that's associated with obesity. Oh, okay. Um, hormonal replacement therapies is connected or shown a strong correlation with breast cancer, as is low vitamin D. So oh. I would recommend women get their vitamin D checked. The lower limit is in roughly about 30. Um, most physicians are happy if you're in the low 30s. I recommend that you be uh, closer to the upper limit of normal, which is around 100. That's why you'll get optimal um, impact for your immune system. Other ways that um, are other risk factors are women who don't breastfeed or women who delay childbearing to after the age of 30. Okay, so as far as modifiable risk factors, you would advise your female patients to maintain a normal BMI, to get more exercise, and to add more plant foods into their diet, right? Yes, um, the actual, for, as far as the four-prong approach, I, I, as when I spoke of obesity earlier, I mentioned lowering your BMI less than 30 to prevent pregnancy-related complications. But as far as breast cancer is concerned, they mm -hmm. recommend a healthy weight, which is a BMI less than 25. That's a good point. Thank you. Let's move on to lifestyle medicine. You are about to sit for your board exam at the upcoming lifestyle medicine conference in Orlando. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to going to the conference. I'm I'm busily studying the days leading up to it um, because I, I really want to get certified in this. Feeling pretty good about where I stand right now. It's always exciting to meet new people, especially in a field that you're so passionate about, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Michael Greger will be there. Um, he's one of my favorites. I'm looking forward to meeting other people from my area. Um, you and I both know Do the Chalas, Manish and Bandana Chala. Um, they'll be there. So I'm looking forward to meeting them. And I'm also um, going to be uh, meeting some people in the women's interest group um, at the ACLM because women's health is kind of upper, underrepresented there um, currently. That's just because the bigger diseases like heart disease, cancer, that have kind of taken front and center stage as they should because they're the most common causes of death in this country. But there's a lot of interest right lately, as you know, um, in women's health and more specific prescriptions for women with specific uh, health problems dealing with either breast cancer or fibroids, all kinds of things. How else do you incorporate lifestyle medicine? Um, I just did walk a doc with a doc with a chala. See, I know I saw their posts on Instagram and how did it go? It went great. Um, I had a great time. You know, it's interesting because normally I see patients in the context of a billable charge. I very rarely see people who are interested in learning things outside of their own doctor's visits. So it's a lot of fun, actually. And I really enjoy the interaction. I enjoy the interaction with other physicians. Uh, we learn each from each other, which is awesome. And it's kind of nice to have a little tribe that you can identify with. I totally agree. Uh, Dr. Riz and I really enjoy being part of Walk with the Doc. And we enjoy when people come out and walk with us and talk about their health and changes that they're making on their own. And it's really motivating for us. One of the things I did personally was I realized I wasn't moving enough. So I joined a CrossFit gym a few months ago. Wow. I'm the oldest one there. And <laughs> it's kind of funny because I kind of call it Nick Knight myself granny because uh, everybody there is at least half my age, if not more. So You're right. it's been fun. Uh, it's been great. Well, I'm impressed. You are definitely walking the talk. That is awesome. I know that you're very passionate about women's health in general. Do you have any other recommendation? Well, I wanted to mention a couple of things regarding breast cancer. Um, you know, everyone kind of focuses on mammography as the primary way, way to screen, and it is, is, it is a useful tool. 
But mm -hmm. I also advocate doing monthly breast exams because the current guidelines for mammography only recommend a mammography every other year between the ages of 50 and 74. Okay. So I tell women, you don't need to wait two years to be proactive in screening yourself. Doing a breast self-exam is, is actually as sensitive, mm -hmm. not more sensitive than doing a mammography every two years. And okay. you can palpate um, something as small as a centimeter, which is about the size of a large like M&M or peanut M&M, alert your doctor to it and pick things up long before you are needing an, another mammogram. So uh, those are things that you can ask your doctor to show you um, and demonstrate for you so you can get comfortable. Um, and there's also plenty of online videos that demonstrate how to do it. That's a very good point. Thank you for bringing it up. So in addition to our yearly exams, we should do monthly self-exams. And um, we can either ask our physician to teach us or we can look, look up videos on YouTube. Right. And then, you know, depending on how often you go, it's something easy to do. Um, you can do it in the shower. You can do it in bed. You know, it doesn't really matter. Just doing it once a month. And if you're still having periods, we recommend that um, probably wait a week after your period before you do it. Don't do it right around your period because your breasts are more dense and it's a little harder to palpate. You know, wait at least a week. Um, about a week. And then because all the hormone levels drop by then, that's usually the ideal time to do it. If you do it in the week, prior to menstruation or during menstruation, that's usually when your breasts are more dense and it's more difficult to palpate something that's small. You know, as far as uh, risk for breast cancer, the peak ages are ages 52 to 72, mm -hmm. um, which is why they don't advocate mammograms after about age 74 because it's not cost effective. It in other words, it doesn't lower the death rate. So it doesn't mean you should stop doing self-breast exams either. Um, yeah. And I think for women who have um, more dense breasts, I think that's more complicated as far as doing monthly breast or monthly breast screenings. Mm -hmm. um, you have to kind of have a discussion with your physician and see, you know, if if there's another alternative for screening, whether it's more common physician visits to have uh, breast exams, like say every six months um, instead of every year. You know, there's different ways you can do that um, uh, and still protect yourself. Well, we've touched on several important issues regarding women's health, and I appreciate that. If people want to know more or have questions about the topics that we covered, how can they reach you? They can contact me. Um, my professional email is nancy.erickson, that's spelled E-R-I-K-S-E-N, mm -hmm. at bcm.edu. Okay. Don't contact me that way. Thank you for sharing that. I will make sure to include it in the bio of the podcast. Dr. Erickson has been such a pleasure speaking with you and speaking about these topics that are important for women. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. That was a wonderful conversation that I had with Dr. Nancy Louise Erickson from Houston, Texas. And after this interview, we headed to Orlando for the Lifestyle Medicine Conference. She did take her board exam. She did pass. So now she's certified in lifestyle medicine. Um, also, I wanted to share the website that we talked about earlier. Um, if you are interested in obtaining the 46-page Let's Be Breast Cancer cookbook that has also tips on how to reduce your risk, go to this website, pcrm.org forward slash Let's Be Breast Cancer, and I will include it in the body as well. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to Dr. Riz and Maya with Plant-Based DFW.